right, well, th- uh, the beginning of the sermon will be just a tad awkward, honestly, because um, before getting to today's message, I do need to spend just a moment and correct something that Pastor Jared said a couple weeks ago. And, and honestly, it's not something I enjoy doing. As, as staff, what we try to do when somebody makes a mistake, we take them aside person to person. But it was, it was something he preached, and, and when it's preached publicly, it needs corrected publicly. Uh, and so it's my job as a lead pastor, and it's not fun. But um, <clears throat> the sermon was two weeks ago. It was the one on Pergamum. I know all the churches start to blend, and you don't know which one that is. Just to jog your memory, it's the one, you know, he and I were joking back and forth about stadiums, and so he did the, remember when he did the OSU Horseshoe Stadium? Uh, that, it was that sermon, okay? Anyway, uh, Pergamum, it's, um, he said, is the home of Satan. Now, it does say in the text that Satan's throne is there and that Satan dwells there, <clears throat> but the reality is, if that is Satan's home, you would never locate the OSU Horseshoe there. It would be this stadium right here. So, okay, so now you know. We ha- I just felt the need to correct that before we move on this morning. Uh, because uh, I'll tell you what, Jesus, as we go through these seven letters to the church, Jesus has a lot of corrections to make. And he is correcting his church universal huge. He's doing it through seven specific letters to seven churches. Now, uh, not every letter has a lot of correction, but I'll tell you what, today's letter is loaded with correction. Let's look at it together. We're in Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. It says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive. But you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, so that... There's like a lot of correction and warning in there. Now, Pastor Jared well said a lot of these start with commendation first. The commendation in this case is like really short. He says, I know your works. That's neither good nor bad. That's like saying, I know what you did. Okay, like that's not necessarily, in this case, it's a backhanded compliment because right after that, it's a setup. He says, you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. You're actually dead. And so this letter, what we'll look at this morning, it's all about fake versus real spirituality. Fake versus real. And we'll see that Jesus is addressing the church as a congregation, as a group, a whole. But then he's also speaking to individuals within the congregation. He says, hey, there's some who are alive. I still have a few in that church. So it's both corporate and individual. But Jesus ups the ante. Because he doesn't use the language of fake versus real. He uses the language of dead versus alive. 
And that's kind of a big deal. It's a really big deal. So let's start out by talking about the corporate side of a church. He's addressing a church as a whole. And he says that they are religiously alive, but spiritually dead. And unfortunately, that describes a lot of churches today. And I want to get, just give you a feel for what that can look like. Uh, sometimes churches are focused on the three B's. When pastors go to conferences, they talk about the three B's. Butts, budgets, and buildings. How many butts do you have in seats? How many people? What are your budgets? So it's all about the money and then the building. It's all about the building. It becomes about the three B's instead of no, grow, go. Know Jesus Christ personally. Grow in your relationship with him. Go advance his kingdom. That's what it should be about. They think they're alive, but they're dead. A lot of churches become about preserving the past and protecting our children. That's really it. Protect our kids. And unfortunately, grace and passion and vision and mission and joy, they've all left the building. And it's hollow and it's dour and it's boring. It's boring. Some of these dead churches have conned a few young couples into being a part of their congregation so that they had a baby, and that's the only new life in the church. That is to say, the only new life is by first birth, never by second birth. There are no redemption stories going on in that congregation. That's a dead church. They sing songs that have words about spiritual life, but they sing them with dead voices. It's a dead church. The Pharisees, the religious elitists of the day, the Pharisees fit right in and feel at home, but broken, messy sinners who desperately need Jesus do not feel welcome there. It's a dead church. Now, don't, don't be mistaken. There is lots of activity in dead churches. There are meetings and there are programs, and you darn well better never change one of those programs because you're going to hear from Betty. Everyone's going to hear from Betty, right? Like, don't change anything. They are religiously alive, but spiritually dead. I think of these churches as hospice churches. Okay, it's not that they do a lot of hospice ministry, which would be wonderful, but they themselves are on hospice. This is a church that is being artificially kept alive, but they're really just at death's doorstep. This is a dead church. And oftentimes they don't know it. Right? And, and that's because they have a reputation of being alive. Usually that's built upon the glory days of the past. Like in here, we have a lot of guys that think they're still athletes. <laughs> built on the glory days of your reputation of the past, right? But, but then, so they think they're alive. And ironically, these churches that are actually dead spend a lot of time tisk, tisking, you know. Other churches that are alive, and what they will say is, you know, they're just entertaining people over there. We're serious disciples here. You know you can be serious and dead? And some of them are. Some of them are. Despite their reputation among humanity, Jesus said he has weighed them and found them wanting. And that's a big problem. Now, by the way, Redemption Chapel, don't hurt yourself patting yourself on the back. Because we have a reputation of being alive. Which means if we're not careful, that's us right there. And so we need to care not what men say about us. We need to care what Jesus says about us as a church. 
Now, that's the corporate side of it. Uh, this is also addressing individual specific people within the congregation. Evidently, there were people there that were part of the congregation. This, this is the people to whom the letter is addressed. They're part of the congregation, but they are not spiritually alive. They are spiritually dead, which means they are not Christians. They're a part of the church, but they are not Christians. Maybe they go to church regularly, like every Sunday. They know when to stand. They know when to sit. When the pastor gives the benediction, they, they can almost repeat it with them, and I see your lips move at times. You know, they, they know all the things. They know how to smile. They, they know uh, all the right vocabulary. Oh, praise God, brother. Life is good. God is good all the time, all the time. God, they know all this stuff. They can go through the motions. Maybe they serve a church. Maybe they give generously to the church. But Jesus said there would be people. In Matthew 7, he said there will be people who are so incredibly religiously involved, but they will come to him at the end of time and say, Jesus, didn't we do this, that, and the other thing in your name? And he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Now, he's omniscient. He knows about everyone. And what we have in the church is some people who know about God, but they do not know him. Like with our president, I know Joe Biden. Well, I know about Joe Biden. I don't know him personally. You feel the difference? And so some people know about Jesus. They don't know him personally. And so when we say no, grow, go, it's know Jesus personally. Depart from me. I never knew you. They'll hear that, and, and then they might respond, but, yeah, but Jesus... Everyone really likes me. I have a reputation of being an awesome Christian. Yeah, but that's the reputation among men. And that's not the reputation that matters in that moment. You are religiously alive, but spiritually dead. Did you think when you stand before Jesus, it would be a popularity contest like high school student council? That's just not the way it's going to go down. You will stand before the one who examines hearts, who knows whether you're alive or dead. So the, there's a great warning here from Jesus. And what he's saying is, hey, be careful. Just because you're in church, you still, you might be a zombie. Our culture loves zombies these days, right? All into zombie movies and stuff like that. Walking Dead, I watch Walking Dead, I get it. What is a zombie? A zombie is one who is actually dead but mimics being alive. Walks around. As if alive, but is actually dead. And some people are spiritual zombies. Jesus is basically renaming this church. He's writing them and saying, hey, you will now be known as the first church of zombies in Sardis. Some of you are spiritual zombies in this room right now. You, you have learned the skill of mimicking Christian life, of mimicking spiritual life. But there might not be tenderness in your heart towards Christ. There might not be relationship with him day in, day out. There might not be a spirit-led life. There might not be conviction and repentance and growth going on in your life. In which case, you're a poser. You've learned to give the appearance of life that you do not have. You are actually dead inside. And I'll tell you what, you can fool people. You can fool the people around you in the chairs right now. You can fool the people in your community group. You can even fool pastors but you can't fool Jesus. <laughs> you just can't fool Jesus, and he's the one that counts. So the good news in the midst of this, that's kind of harsh, that's heavy, I get it, but the good news is you're not in the grave yet. Right? Like that's, Jesus says that. He says, listen, listen, you're mostly dead. 
Do you rec recognize the quote from Princess Bride, right? Okay, if you don't recognize it, watch this. Where's that bellows cram? He probably owes you money, huh? Well, I'll ask him. His daddy can't talk. Ooh, but, ooh, look who knows so much, huh? Well, it just so happens that your friend here is only mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Please open his mouth. Now, mostly dead, he's slightly alive. Now, all dead, well, with all dead, there's usually only one thing that you can do. What's that? Go through his clothes and look for loose change. <laughs> and that's what Jesus is saying to them. You are mostly dead. If you look in the passage, he says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. You're like 99.9% .9 dead, but you're not in the grave yet. You're mostly dead. So what he says is, wake up. Wake up. Now that's a phrase that would resonate with the Sardinians. So let me tell you a little bit about Sardis. It was a fortress that was on the end of a mountain ridge. Okay, like this ridge went out, and on the very end of it, they built this fortress, which means it had a commanding view of the landscape around it. But also, the only approach to it was like this steep, narrow, dangerous path. It was really hard to get in there. And so it was viewed as just impenetrable. You could not get to it. However, twice in its history, it was conquered. Once by the Persians, another time by the Greeks. And the way they went down is they, of course, defended the front gate. But on those back walls that were along the cliff, they thought there's no way. So the soldiers on those walls went to sleep. And, and enemy soldiers came. They found a way to scale up the ravine and got in there and leveled them and conquered the whole city. And so here Jesus is saying, listen, you, th you might be in the fortress of the church and you think you're safe. Just and he's saying, wake up. Wake up. You are mostly dead. Wake up before it is too late. Now what's interesting in uh, the church at Sardis is that there are none of the other threats that are mentioned in the letters to the other churches. And if you think about the letter we read, there's no mention in there of sexual immorality, persecution from the Jews, forced emperor worship, martyrdom, false teaching, Balaam, Jezebel, none of that's in there. There's no throne of Satan. There's, there's no mention of threats, either external or internal. So what is the threat to the church at Sardis? It's the church at Sardis. <laughs> it, it's, it's them. If you remember, Walt Kelly had that comic strip called Pogo. And he has a famous line from that where he said, we have met the enemy and he is us. He is us. We're the end. So we've been lulled to sleep and we're complacent and we become religious. And so the, the Sardinian church, they were at peace. But it wasn't, it's not the right kind of peace. It's the peace of a soldier who's asleep on a wall while the enemy is climbing up and about to destroy him. It's that kind of peace. It's worldly peace. It's not peace with Christ. So Jesus says, wake up. Wake up before it's too late. Listen, what that means is God gives us windows of opportunity. He won't always tarry. Windows of opportunity. Maybe some of you will have a window of opportunity this morning where you will feel God tugging at your heart and you're going to have to decide, am I going to shove it down the road again or am I going to respond? Windows of opportunity because he says you are mostly dead. Wake up before it's too late because at that point all we can do is just go through your clothes 
and look for loose change. That's all we can do at that point. So, so if you want to wake up, then the question becomes, well, how do I wake up? And if you look in the passage, we're given three commands. Remember, keep, repent. The first command is remember. Remember what you have received and heard. What, what have we received and heard? The gospel. Apostolic teaching, orthodoxy, we have received that. Now there was some suspicion by historians that the church in Sardis had mixed in pagan thinking and pagan practices with Christianity, and they had mixed those together. We don't tend to do that today, at least not the church in America. We don't do that as much. But we're still tempted to take the thinking and the teaching of the world and the practices of the world and mix it in with the church, and still we end up with this blended kind of thing. We could be doing that. See, we live in an increasingly post-Christian society, a society that does not share our assumptions and our opinions and our beliefs. And we are tempted in the midst of it to apologize for God, to be embarrassed of our God, to, to take the teaching of the world and to correct scriptures in, instead of allowing scriptures to correct the teaching of the world. We're tempted by that. And so he says, remember, remember what you have received and heard. The, the faith once for all delivered to the saints, the apostles, like hold on to that. And, and then keep it. The second command is keep it. So let me tease that out. Let me ask you some questions. How much do you read your Bible and pray? How much do you serve God both in the church and outside the church? How much do you give generously to people in need and give to your church, give to other ministries? How often, and or maybe I should say, when is the last time, can you remember a time where you share the gospel of Jesus Christ with someone? Do you lean into fellowship, not only going to community group, but you open your life vulnerably, and, and then you love the people there and serve them sacrificially, even though it's inconvenient? Do you confess your sin to fellow believers? When other people have sinned, do you forgive them open-handedly? My guess is you might feel some guilt bubbling up, some shame right about now, right? So now, none of us do well on that list. But the goal is not guilt and shame. It's not behavior modification. It's heart adjustment. Listen, Dr. Howard Hendricks, famous prof down at Dallas Theological Seminary, now, now deceased. The prof said this. He said, if Christians truly believe just one-tenth of what they say they believe, they ought to be ten times more effective than they are. It's not an issue of what we say we believe. Do we really believe it? Like, here's some of the things we believe. Think of it. We believe in this wonderful, beautiful God, triune, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, eternally existent. He's perfect. He's infinite. He's holy. He's good. He's loving. He's wise and merciful and gracious. I could go on and on. He's amazing. He's amazing. He's the source of life, both creation and existence, but also the source of joy, so like joyful life. He's the source of life. But what we did as humanity, every last one of us and all of us together, we rebelled against him, and we went into sin, we went into the fall, and therefore we are all condemned and in a broken relationship with God, except the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and that empty tomb, his resurrection, and the fact that he is coming back for us. And so eternity matters. Heaven and hell are on the table here like it's a big deal. So kingdom matters, mission matters, ministry matters. So what we are supposed to do is deny ourselves, live for Christ, live for eternity, live for God, live for people. 
love them as best as we can. And if we suffer, who cares? Because suffering sanctifying, right? That's what we say we believe. Do we? Do we? I mean, the point, again, is not behavior modification. It's not try harder, do better, work harder. That's not it. It's instead, remember what we say we believe. And then let that sink down to a heart level such that it changes us and it seeps out of us. We're not going outside in. We're going inside out. That's the gospel. But if we're honest, what we usually do is this. I identify with Christ with Christianity which means I'm supposed to hate what is evil and cling to what is good. That's Bible. And so I'm supposed to hate the things of the world and love the things of God. But what I actually do is I kind of love this stuff. I want to be honest about that, that I still kind of love this stuff. And so what I'm going to try to do is work harder as a good Christian, where even though I love it, I'm going to try not to do it. I'm going to try to do this stuff. And instead, what I think God wants us to do is get to a point where I love God. I love who He is. I love what He's like. I love His kingdom. I love His gospel. I love eternity. I love people. And so I hate those stuff of the world. I love the things of God. Now it's just flowing out of me. That's the way we're supposed to roll. Which means to get there, we probably need to look at the third command. And it's to repent. Remember it in our passage, it says repent. And that means to make a 180, to turn around and go the other direction. Which means you know you, you're, you're kind of a poser. You're a fake, you're a zombie. You pretended life, but you're actually dead. And, and you know you've been playing a religious game. You know God is not fooled. And so what you're going to do is push all your chips to the middle of the table this morning. You're going to go all in on Jesus. You're not holding anything back. I am in. I'm done playing games. Does that mean you won't be messy? <laughs> no. No, no, no. No. We're still messy, absolutely. We say all the time, redemption chapel does messy. Redemption does messy. Now, when messy gets met with repentance, it leads to beauty. When messy gets coupled with a lack of humility, it gets gross. And we have in the past had that on our staff team, and it got gross. We have had that in membership, and it got gross. We're not upset with messy. Messy just needs repentance, and then it gets beautiful. So messy's okay. We just need repentance. So those are the three commands, to remember, keep it, and repent. But then there's a warning. If you look at the last sentence there, the second coming is a warning. Now, understand this. Usually in the New Testament, when the second coming is mentioned, it's comfort. It's consolation. I know it's hard. Don't worry. Jesus is coming back. and It'll be great. That's not what this one says. This one says Jesus is coming back, and he's coming against you. That's how we know there are a bunch of fakes. They weren't really Christians because Jesus doesn't come against his own. He comes for his own. So Jesus is coming back, and the question on the table then is, will that be a moment of great disappointment or great rejoicing? Like, if, if you spent your days thinking of Jesus, longing for Jesus, working for Jesus, walking with him, talking with him like you love him, and then he comes back, what a glorious, glorious moment that's going to be. And yet, the other option is, will that be the moment that though you have faked being alive, you find out that you are actually dead spiritually. It's not going to be a good, good moment for you. Find out that you have actually lived for the things of the world and not for Jesus and his kingdom. And, and, and in that case, what will Jesus' return be like? Why would we expect in that case to be all butterflies and rainbows? 
you know? Think of it this way. Think of a uh, military guy that gets deployed for a year, leaves his wife and kids at home, and while he's away, the wife does not write him. She does not call him. She does not receive his calls. Uh, they, they agreed before he left that she was going to get the car fixed. She doesn't fix the car. She doesn't take care of the house. She doesn't take care of the kids. In fact, while he's gone, she's unfaithful. She has an affair. Now, he's supposed to be gone for a year, but he actually gets back six months early and surprises her. Let me ask you, how's that reunion going to go? Jesus is talking plain here. It is very presumptuous of us to think that we can blow him off and live for the things of this world even though we call ourselves Christians and we sit in a church and somehow everything's going to be okay. That's just presumption. But don't miss this. It is not about guilt and shame. The offer on the table here is to be alive. Like That's kind of a good thing. Like That's what he wants for us. To, to wake up and live life that is true life, to be alive with God, to know Jesus personally, to grow in your relationship with him, to go advance his kingdom. Listen, God is not calling you to less. He's calling you to more. That's what he wants, for you to be fully alive. And evidently, there were a few, only a few, but there were a few in the church in Sardis that were actually alive. It says in the second part of the passage here, there it is. It says, yet you still have a few names in Sardis. People who have not soiled their garments. Now some of you are middle school boys at heart just like I am and chuckled at that line, right? I get it. I get it. Yeah. But now, listen, what's that mean, though, that they haven't soiled their gust and garments? Listen, we know we are messy sinners. We know that we don't have perfect personal righteousness. We know that we don't earn righteousness before God, but it is conferred on us by Jesus Christ. So if you look in the passage, it says they will walk in white. Not that they do, but that they will. That it will be conferred on them in the future by Christ himself. It reminds me of Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. It says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. That's the work of God in our lives. Now still, these, the ones who were truly alive, true Christians in Sardis, they were not zombies. They were alive. Listen, things that are alive bear fruit. If you're alive, you bear fruit. That's what live things do. We've said it before in this church that, that God has enough compassion to take you just the way you are. But he also has enough compassion to not leave you like that. And so we, we, these saints in Sardis, they had come to hate what is evil and to cling to what is good. This was not a stale zombie religion for them. It was a life-changing relationship with the life-changing God. And they were living that. Now here's the interesting thing. If you look at the letter, they, they, um, the letter is not written to the Christians in the church. The letter is written to the zombies. And what he does, talking to the zombies, is he points out the Christians. Why does he point them out? And I believe it's because he's saying, there's your role models, there's your examples. But zombies, um, 
Zombies go, nah. I don't want to be, they're Jesus freaks. They're holy rollers, right? Like, they're weirdos, and I don't want to be like them. And so what happens is those who claim to be Christians take as their role models the children of the world. And so we look to politicians and musicians and athletes and actors, YouTubers and Instagrammers and TikTokers. Like, these people become our role models. We want to be like them. So what you have is those who claim to be children of God making role models out of the children of this world. And here's Jesus saying, no. Look for the people in the church who are actually walking with me. Speaking of athletes, you know the term sports fan. Do you know where it comes from? There's some debate about it, but most would say it's sports fanatic. I'm guessing we have some sports fanatics in here right now. The reality is you are fanatical about something. Everybody's fanatical about something. What The problem you have in the church sometimes is you have people who claim they're Christians. They're saying, but I will be fanatical about anything but not Jesus. I don't want to be a fanatic. That's weird. That's dead. That's dead. Wake up. Find some Christians who are spiritually alive. They have not soiled their garments, and they are walking the walk and talking the talk, and you, you surround your life with them and learn from them. Learn from them. And if you do, the, the, the hope is that you would wake up and that you would, too would be spiritually alive, and then you get in on some promises. Like, there are a lot of promises in there. Look, it says, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. Okay, well, what's it mean to conquer? How do you become a conqueror? By the way, if you're in a different translation, it might say the one who overcomes. Conquer, overcome, same word in the Greek. The one who conquers. How do I become a conqueror? All that means is that you are a Christian. Don't believe me? Remember, John is the one writing these things down for Jesus. He wrote other letters in the New Testament. Look at 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 through 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. That's the same word for conquer right there. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you see it? It's all about believing in Jesus, and he conquers, so we're in on that, and so we become conquerors. It's not that we're that great. It's all about Jesus. And so if you believe in Jesus and become a conqueror, what happens is your name gets written in the book of life. And what's he say at another promise? He says your name is never blotted out of the book of life. You see, when you put your faith in Christ, you get adopted as a child of God. You know how adoption works, right? There's no return policy on adoption. Like you don't get six months in and go, the thing is still crying. Can I give it back? No. You wouldn't want to. Why? Because it's your kid. God never kicks his kids to the curb. There is no return policy. Okay? Now, if you're a fake, if you're a phony, if you're a zombie, if you're actually dead, your name was never written in the book of life. You see that? If you're dead, your name's not in the book of life. That is to say, when God writes your name in there, he writes it with permanent marker, not with pencil. He will never blot your name out of the book of life. And then the last promise is he says, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. 
So what this imagines is that moment when you walk into heaven, like you're at the gate and you're on your way in, and you, you just look nasty. Look at you people. You look nasty. I'm just telling you, okay? So, so you look nasty, and you're walking in, and everybody's going, does that one belong here or not? Here's what doesn't happen. You don't show up in your shiny white garments, and everybody snaps her head and goes, oh, my goodness, that one's certainly in. No. You show up nasty, and Jesus says, She's mine. She belongs to me. I died for that one. I paid the price of admission. That one's let her in and go get one of my white robes of my righteousness and you wrap it around her. She's mine. I will confess his name or her name before my father and his angels. That is Jesus claiming us. And that's the promise. And so he's writing to this church that is full of zombies and wants them in on the promise because they are think they're alive, but they're actually dead. Now, what I want to do to land this is, um, remember, that it's written both to the church corporate, but also to individuals in the church. And so I want you to know this. That, listen, just because there's a sign out in front of your building that says church, that doesn't mean jack. You've got to say, what kind of church do you want to be? So let me throw a long list at you. Will be redemption stories or just rituals? Forgiveness or Pharisees? Celebrate Christ or celebrity culture? Corrected by the word or correct the word? Will there be joy or judgy? Mission or museum? Hospital or holy huddle? Impact or institution? Be freedom or formalism? Transformation or just tired tradition? Godly character or gradual compromise? It will be sacred cows or steaks cooked? Medium rare, if you please. What kind of church do you want? And, and I, I am asking you, Redemption Chapel, do you want to be alive or do you want to be dead? And if you want to be in a live church, then we must desperately pray often. Who cares what the world says about us? We need Jesus to move to make sure we stay alive. So pray for your church often. And then on the individual side, listen, just because you sit in a church doesn't mean jack. Maybe you've heard things said like, Going to church doesn't make you a Christian, just like standing in a garage doesn't make you a car. Or going to McDonald's doesn't make you a hamburger. Or playing in the stadium doesn't make you a football team. I'm just saying, right? All comes full circle. All comes full circle. So listen, if you're a fake, if you're a poser, if you're a zombie, I want to speak very clearly to you right now. You've got a window of opportunity. God could be pulling at your heart. Don't presume. I need you to wake up. I need you to remember the gospel, to keep it, to repent, to push all your chips to the middle of the table today. In a bit, I'll pray. We'll bring the band back out. And, and I want you to respond. Listen, maybe you'll respond right where you are. You'll put your hands up. You'll kneel. Maybe you'll come up here and kneel in the front. Maybe you'll call in this week and say, I need to talk to a pastor or an elder to meet with them. Whatever you need to do to respond, to wake up. In fact, stand with me, if you will. Let me pray for us.
Father, we come before you humbly because we don't want to be a church that has a reputation of being alive that is actually dead. And so we ask for your provision, your protection, your guidance and leadership. Lord, glorify yourself there, please. And then I pray that with individuals that are a part of the congregation, but maybe not a part of Christ, that is not a good thing. And I pray that you would tug their hearts right now, that they would step out, that they would step forward, that they would wake up and push all their chips to the middle of the table right now as we sing. And I pray in Christ's name.